Hello everyone and welcome back to World of Sharks, a podcast by the Save Our Seas Foundation that is all about sharks, their relatives and the oceans. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with experts in shark science, conservation, education and storytelling to take you on a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. This week we are jumping into the fascinating world of snoot science to learn all about shark noses and how they sense their environment with aquatic sensory biologist and all-round amazing human Dr Lauren Eve Simonitis. Now every time I research these episodes I see someone's research project or thesis and I think I wish I was doing that but when I came across Lauren's work that feeling was like next level because not only does she look at shark senses using super cool methodology to look inside a shark's head and understand how the morphology of their sensory system differs between species, but she also studied the neurobehavioral mechanisms of ink as an anti-predation strategy for her PhD. What this entailed was looking at three different groups of animals, sea hares, cuttlefish and pygmy sperm whales, who all ink as a way to ward off predators. And what Lauren was interested in is how this strategy evolved in parallel and also how predators respond to this ink. And the predator she looked at is the bonnethead shark. I had to ask her about this because not only are bonnetheads amazing sharks, but the pygmy sperm whale has a very interesting inking mechanism that I think you'll all find hilarious and fascinating in equal measures. As a National Science Foundation postdoctoral research fellow in biology at the Florida Atlantic University and University of Washington's Friday Harbor Labs, Lauren also studies the olfactory system of sharks by describing the general morphology, distribution of sensory structures and fluid dynamics of different chondrichthyan nasal morphologies. This basically means looking at how water flows through the nose and what this means for how sharks sense their environment. In this episode, we talk about Lauren's work, how she looks inside a shark's nose, what the structure of a shark's olfactory system looks like and then what it looks like in different species, and our shared passion for an overlooked but pretty spectacular group of animals, the sea hare. We also tackle some popular myths about sharks, as I ask Lauren how good a shark's sense of smell really is, and whether they actually go into a feeding frenzy after catching just a whiff of blood, which is something that Hollywood would have us believe. (laughs) I'm sure you'll love this episode. Lauren is a brilliant science communicator. She's so funny, and the way her answers are put are so brilliant, and her research is absolutely fascinating. If you like this episode, please be sure to go and show Lauren some love. There are links to her social media and everything else in the show notes. And please consider leaving us a rating and review on your podcast app because it helps more people to find us and find out about amazing people like Lauren and amazing things such as how awesome bonnet hedgehogs are and that there's a species that inks while it poops. Alrighty, we'll get into that. Get ready to get snooty and let's dive in to our episode. Hello, Lauren, and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. And I am so excited to chat to you because we are going to get into some as you said it yourself, some snoot science, which is possibly my favorite field in the world. (laughs) It sounds so much fun. Good, good, good. Then you have good taste. (laughs) Yeah, I I study humans for a living. So when it comes to like studying things like sharks, snoots, and all the stuff we're going to get into in this episode, I just lose my mind and have the best nerdiest time. So I am so happy and so pleased to get into it. Um, But before we get into your research, we're going to learn a little bit about you, first of all. And regular listeners of the podcast will know that we start and end the podcast with the same question for every guest. And the first one is, do you have an experience with the ocean that stands out as particularly memorable for you? Yeah, so I was really lucky in undergrad. I went to the University of Miami. And um, one of the main draws there is that you get to do the study abroad experience in the Galapagos. And that 
overall was like a life-changing time. It was especially, you know, it was like my junior, my third year of university. So um, I was kind of burnt out. And I was like, I don't know if this field is so hard. Like there's so much chemistry, there's so much math. Like this is just, there's so much going on. Um, and then going to the Galapagos and being somewhere that's so foundational to our field was incredible in and of itself. It like was really rejuvenating. And one of the best parts is we were just, we were coming back from a snorkel, like a normal casual snorkel. And we happened to see a whale shark at the surface, just swimming with its mouth open. Um, and we all just essentially jumped in the water and free swam with this whale shark. It's the biggest shark I've ever, the biggest thing I've ever been close to. It was totally impromptu. I didn't study sharks at the time, but I just, it was the most majestic thing I've ever seen. And it just really kind of brought you back to like that childlike wonder, which is why we all start, I feel like in this field is just, we're so fascinated with these weird marine animals. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So a field trip to the Galapagos is pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. I need to go to the University of Miami. I've changed my changed my career course now. That sounds incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was super fun. Come on down. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. And also to have that like kind of really formative experience at that stage in your career where I know we do have students listening who are possibly like battling through that stage at the moment where you have come through the kind of fun courses, which is like what animals are and like the history and uh, going into all the different groups of animals. And then they hit you with stats in like your third or second year or something. And you're like, what? Why? I was having fun doing the other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, having, having a field course like that kind of really reminds you of why you're doing this in the first place and like how fun it actually can be and just how amazing the natural world is and my goodness I'm so jealous that you were able to go to the Galapagos that is so cool but from that experience you are now an aquatic sensory biologist and we've never actually had one on the podcast before you are the first one so oh my god I'm so honored. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we should have like a little celebration for that. But can you explain to our listeners what this means? Yeah. So I am fascinated with thinking about how animals that live in the water perceive their environment. So we think of our senses, we live in a fluid. Um, So air is a fluid and they just live in a vastly different fluid. So if we think about all of the things that we can perceive touch, you know, we can think about something actually touching us or feeling the wind blow. Animals in the water have the same type of thing. So they feel the currents all around them. They feel something ramming into them or they feel that force of the water coming towards them as something's moving. All of those differences and the ways that these animals adapt to observing the environment through that fluid is just super fascinating to me. And it must be like just so interesting to delve into how different animals like experience that and especially sharks because I imagine it's really hard for me to comprehend how sharks, they've got so many senses, so many incredible senses that just, I imagine for someone like for a human, it would be complete sensory overload. Yeah, that's something that I just find so fascinating. Like kind of what I was talking about a minute ago, feeling the water all around you, first of all, sounds like constantly feeling your environment sounds like sensory overload, but all these animals do it. And then you layer in the senses we have, plus all the extra bonus senses that they have from the water. So it's really fascinating to think about like how these animals can modulate and exist with all of this sensory overload, like you said. Yeah. And so how did you come to study sharks then? I know you had that like amazing experience with the whale shark at the beginning, but like how did you come to study shark senses in particular? Yeah, I actually really fell into sharks kind of by accident. So um, I started like I, I enjoyed sharks, like I enjoyed seeing them in the wild, but they were never truly my passion. There's a lot of people that grow up and they're like, sharks are the coolest. And I was like, yeah, they're very cool. But have you thought about sea slugs? Now that is where the action really is. So (laughs) I loved sea slugs and I grew up just like being fascinated in science classes or watching Animal Planet about 
neurobiology. So thinking about, you know, how these animals work in the wild, but also thinking about what we can learn from them for our own neurobiological needs. So I was really interested in pharmacology through the ocean. So studying animals and how they work to inform human health, specifically neuro diseases. Um, and sea slugs were a great way for that because I studied in undergrad, I studied these aplesia. They are California sea hares and they are a model system for how we study um, the nervous system. Um, Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize studying them because they're really neat. Yeah, so I kind of got started studying nervous systems in the ocean. I took organic chemistry and I was like, nope, pharmaceuticals is not for me. This is so difficult. I don't understand how these tiny molecules work. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, nope, <laughs> this is not for me. <laughs> Um, so then I really started <laughs> focusing on neurophysiology. So again, looking at how these animals' brains work, um, I got really interested in transitions to life and water. So thinking about neurobiology in the water, and that's where I got into sensory biology. Um, and then for my PhD, I joined a lab where um, my advisor, Christopher Marshall at Texas A&M University at Galveston, he had previously started studying pygmy sperm whale ink. So pygmy and dwarf sperm whales are these two, you know, they're whales. They're, they're a smaller whale, as you can tell by their name, but they're still whales. Like they have teeth, they're able to swim. They're pretty, you know, self-reliant, but they have evolved this really weird anti-predator defense, which is inking. So whenever they get scared, whenever they are in predation, they will release ink as well as poop from their butthole into the water. Um, That's so, nice. <laughs> yeah. So it's like this mix of feces, but also red syrupy ink. Um, so my Ooh. advisor had just, you know, bottles of this. And he was like, do you want to figure out what this does? And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great use of my six years of my PhD. That sounds amazing. Um and we were like, okay, so what is a predator of whales? Like, what can we test this on? This is a predation strategy. And that's how we landed on sharks. So my shark was really like not my interest. It was kind of just like my thermometer for testing what I was interested in, which was ink. Mm, yeah, I mean, I have so many thoughts on this. Like, firstly, like I said before we started recording, I was like, just the coolest like PhD thesis around and title um it's amazing um, and also I before I started researching for this episode I'd actually never heard of a pygmy sperm whale and when I saw that the because we'll get into some of the other species a little later on but when I saw that some of the species that you studied to do with inking was uh was a whale I was like I've actually never heard of that as a strategy and then to find out that it's like pooping and inking at the same time like what a combo pretty incredible yeah yeah it was always it was always like a day in the lab when I got like my poop packages because I'd be like yeah I got poop in the mail and I'd have to like sift through the poop and separate out the ink and it was like so gross but I was very excited to like receive packages of poop <laughs> yeah and especially excited that you loved sea slugs I also love sea slugs I am a massive sea slug nerd I think they are amazing creatures they look like little pokemon like very very excited to talk about this excellent um but first things first we're kind of gonna go into your research on like snooty science if that's okay um and then we'll come back to the inking later um but first things first what kind of methods do you use to look at shark noses because obviously like when we see a shark you kind of see it's in like nostrils from the surface and that's kind of it so how do you like look inside of that right yeah so we um I really look at how the form and the function of the noses so we look for this tie between how they're shaped so what they look like and then how they function so how do they work where are their receptors how does water flow through um, and we test this both behaviorally and physiologically, but when we look at the morphology, so what this nose looks like, we use this suite of bio-visualization tools, which is just different techniques we can use to visualize what's going on inside of an organic animal. <laughs> so um, 
what we do is we do a couple different things. So the first thing is a normal CT scan. So if you've ever gone to the doctor, gotten a CAT scan, um, it's basically a bunch of x-rays that you take as slowly, like whatever your scanning rotates inside of the machine. And then it takes all these x-rays and stacks them all together. So you get this nice 3D image of what is inside what you're scanning. Um, sharks don't have bones, so they're all cartilage and they're not a lot of hard parts. So especially sharks are a little bit hard to scan because they're pretty soft and, you know, x-rays pick up on hard things. So what we do, especially since we want to look at their soft tissues, so their noses, is we dunk them in this stain that takes up, the tissues take the stain up and it makes it radio opaque or denser so that when we scan, we can see their soft tissues. So we can see their nose. So the little tissues that catch the scent, the nerves that take the scent to the brain, and we can see the brain itself as well. Um, and then that's kind of what we see on the larger scale. Um, and then we can go into the nose and either dissect out the pieces and look at it in a scanning electron microscope, which shows us what the surface of something looks like in really high definition. Or we can use histology, which is basically a little deli slicer that we put our lunch meat on, which is our shark nose, and we slice it super thin, so like five microns, like the size of a cell, and we can see the cell layers and what types of cells make up each layer of the nose. Wow. Okay. So like, and I've seen some of the images that have been generated and yeah, it's, it's almost like the only way I can describe it is that it looks kind of like, you know, when you get like a 3D scan of a baby, if you're pregnant, like similar vibe to that. Yeah, it does. So my next question is kind of going into shark noses. And I, when I wrote this question, I was like, there's over 500 species of shark. I'm not sure if there is a basic structure to a shark's nose. What are the basics? What, are the, what is the like blueprint that we're working with here? Yeah. So, you know, there are, like you said, there's so many different types of sharks and they look really different. They live in really different environments and their noses are different as well, but they do follow a general pattern. And this is something that we see also in teleost fish. So non-sharks fish, um, they have normally, they have paired nostrils, which means on either side of their head, they have two nostrils. So one nostril is called the incurrent, and that is where water goes in. And then the other nostril is called the excurrent, and that is where water goes out. So us, we breathe in and out, you know, sniff in our nose. They can't do that. They can't sniff. So water flows passively into that incurrent and then out the excurrent. And then if you look inside the nose. So it goes through this chamber and it passes through this structure we call a rosette. And the reason we call it a rosette is because it looks like a flower. So basically it's all connected at the center at something we call the reef. And then these little petals come off of it. And those are the lamellae. And the lamellae are where the olfactory receptor neurons sit. And they're sitting there waiting for water to pass by with a chemical when the water passes by with the chemical, the chemical fits into the receptor and the receptor sends a signal that goes all the way up to the brain that says, hey, like I've caught this thing. This is what we're smelling. So that's kind of the general pattern of how a shark nose works. Okay, cool. Um, like the more that I learn about sharks, the more that I love them. Like the fact that they have like a flower-like structure like inside their nose is just the cutest thing. <laughs> Very it's adorable. Yeah. Uh, but then obviously we said that this does differ among species. Um, and I wondered if we could maybe talk about, like obviously not talk about like every single species, but like what are some key differences that we might be able to see? Yeah, so we're still as a whole very understudied on shark noses. So it's getting better, but um, there's still a lot of noses that we have not looked at, have not visualized, have not studied. But um, for the most part, we see differences in how they're shaped. So some of them are really long and tubular. Um, and that's kind of like in our hammerhead, right? You can picture that big, dramatic, wide hammer-like head. So much of that head is a nose. So like basically, if you drew like a line, two lines at either end, and went to meet them in the middle, that is almost as big as their noses. They have a very small gap between their two like olfactory sacs. 
Um, so they're huge and they're tubular. But then when we think about um, one of our more pointy headed sharks, like, you know, a dogfish, um, they have kind of a ball. So it's like a little, basically, if you took that really, really long tube and you compressed it into a little ball, I call it like the tube to ball continuum. It's like very scientific. But um, we see really different arrangements on how like they're shaped. Um, and then if we go back, you know, if we look at what we have as ancient sharks, so our chimeras or our ratfish, if you look at their noses, they only have one nostril. They go in and out the same nose like we do. And um, theirs is like truly a flower. Like it like looks like a little starburst or like a little daisy. So we see a lot of differences based on like what type of shark we're looking at. Yeah. And obviously one of the species that you've like studied the most closely is the bonnethead shark. Yes. Um, <laughs> like can we've not actually featured the shark yet on the podcast so I wondered if we could oh talk gosh. a little bit about I know I know I know it's very very best. bad um, <laughs> <laughs> they might have been mentioned because we did have Amani on in like our second ever episode and so I feel like she might have mentioned them at some point but we've never kind of gone into detail so I wondered if you could tell us first a little bit about this species and secondly like what do their snoots actually look like oh yeah so bonnet heads they're my favorite because obviously like you said they're the ones I've studied the most so they've been my friends for so long but also I just think that they're so cute so they are hammerhead but instead of having a hammer shape they have more of a shovel so that's why they're called bonnet heads because it looks like they're wearing a little bonnet um they're also called scoop heads some places so kind of like a scoop like a little shovel um they're really cute. They're really small. They're like, I want to say they can get like, they're usually like three feet or a little bit under three feet, but maybe they can get a little bit higher if they like, you know, stand up super straight or something. Um, so they're a smaller hammerhead species. Um, what's really cool about them is that they will, you know, chomp along the bottom of the seafloor where all the seagrasses are, and they will accidentally ingest um, seagrass. And for a while, we all just thought, you know, they're just getting a bunch of it incidentally, like it's just an accident and then they just have to pass it. But um, recent research has found that they're actually able to pull nutrients from the seagrass. So they were kind of discovered right. as the first omnivorous shark. So they're having like salad. <laughs> they're a little healthy. Yeah, yeah they're getting their yeah. greens in. Yeah, yeah. Those health conscious sharks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they're really cute and their noses are really easy to study because they're so big. So like I said, in hammerheads, they take up such a large percentage of their head um, and they are really tubular and they have that nice like rosette structure with these two paired lamellae. I like to kind of think of them as like dishes stacked in the dishwasher. It's basically all these little lines of little um, tissue that is what's smelling. Um, but yeah, they look like little sausages kind of in their heads. They're really adorable um, and they're really easy to do these studies on because they're small and because we can keep them in tanks a little bit easier and really study how they um, swim and how they use their nose to navigate the environment. Mm -hmm. That's a really good analogy of like dish plates like stacked in the dishwasher. That's really a really, really good way of thinking about it. Um, and yeah, just I remember reading that about the bonnet head and I was like, we we are literally scratching the surface of what we know about sharks. Like <laughs> to think that there is one that actively goes out and seeks out seagrass to eat is like, yeah, what what don't we know about other species? Um, but yeah, the bonnet heads, they're so cute with their little bonnet on. But we talked a little bit about the differences between like the morphology of shark noses and between different species. And what can these differences like tell us about like how they live and, and, and what they do? Yeah, so that has been like a huge question because the real answer is we do not know why they have different nose shapes. Like, is it just a function of their head evolves differently so their noses change shape? Or is there an actual advantage? So we've looked at this a couple ways. The first is um, looking at sensitivity. So um, my colleagues that I work with, which are Dr. Stephen Kajura and Dr. Trisha Meredith, they have done really foundational work where they looked at the sensitivity of these different um, animals. So different sharks and rays. Um, and basically what you do is you put a little electrode right next to their nose. And whenever a nose 
is smelling something, right? And that olfactory receptor neuron grabs a chemical and sends that electrical signal to the brain that's like, I'm smelling something. That's called an action potential. And if you position your electrode right outside the nose, when all of those little electrical signals are going off, you get kind of this electrical reading that it kind of looks like an EKG. So when you're attached to a heart monitor and you can see your, your heart spiking every time the electrical activity spikes, we see the same thing in a nose, um, a little bit less dramatic. But we see this big uptake in electrical like feedback and then it slowly comes back down. So we can say, hey, the shark's nose is responding to whatever smell we have piped on. And um, what Dr. Kajura and Dr. Meredith found was that no matter what the shark's nose looks like, they all have the same sensitivity to amino acids. So um, there's really no sensitivity difference that we measured based on what their noses look like. Um, it also is the same basic sensitivity as bony fish. So they're really not any better at smelling than um, <laughs> regular fish, they have this big rep of being like super noses, but their noses are pretty, pretty standard. All right. Okay. Yeah. Cause we, we're going to go, going to come onto this later, but like I had a question at the end, which was like one of the most popular myths about sharks is that they are just these like huge swimming noses that have this incredible like sensory ability. Um, and you would imagine that a shark like a hammerhead that has like such a huge kind of surface area for want of a better word they would have this more sensitive nose but like apparently that's not the case yeah yeah so one of our better theories now is kind of like the different nose shapes um impact how water flows through the nose so if it's like this long tube like we see on the hammerhead versus like some of those more ball-like structures like how does that shape impact how water flows and then does that like impact how good they smell? Like maybe we're looking at the wrong part by itself. Like we can't just look at the shape. We have to look at how water flows within that shape. Mm -hmm. Which is what you're doing, which is very cool. Yes. <laughs> but this is a little bit of a curveball question. So feel free not to answer it if, if you don't want to. But I was just thinking back to that chimera that had the sort of would breathe like us and didn't have that different system. Do we know like why that evolved? Yeah. So with the chimeras, they still have the one um, entrance on either side like we do, but it's still a separate system than their breathing. So we don't see breathing and smelling tied until later in evolutionary history. So sharks, fish, they have separate systems. So they're not sniffing in the traditional sense. But if we look at chimeras and we look at um, some of our batoids, so like stingrays and skates, some of them have a connection between their nose and their mouth like we do. So whenever they buccal pump, whenever they're like pushing water across their gills, there is a possible mechanism that they're pulling water in that way, but they're not like truly sniffing. And one of the reasons that we think that this has evolved these like paired systems that move out from the center of the head is for the ability to localize scent plumes in the aquatic environment. So hammerheads are really good at this. If they have a scent, they're trying to like find where the scent is coming from, right? So some a fish is bleeding and the currents are bringing it to them. So what we have found in a lot of studies is that they use their lateral line system. So their system that feels how water moves around them. And it is really well tied to their olfactory system because if they have these two nostrils that are really far apart, they're on opposite ends of this wing head and scent hits one, like the left one first, it's so far away from the other one that they're like, okay, I know where to go. So they can really turn to their left and then navigate into that odor plume. I also wanted to take the opportunity to ask you about your PhD, because um, as you said, you looked at the new neurobehavioral mechanisms of ink as an anti-predation strategy, and then you compared three unrelated taxa to see the functional role of ink as an anti-predation strategy, um, and to see whether that has been conserved despite like evolving independently in these three taxa. I didn't come up with all of that off the top of my head. I read that off my notes. <laughs> <laughs> But I nice. wanted to make wanted to make sure that I got it right. But we already talked about the pygmy sperm whale, which 
amazing very cool animal poops and inks at the same time what is going on but you also studied two other of some of my favorite groups of animals one of which being the sea hare and the other which being the cuttlefish right yes Mm -hmm. yes and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about these species or not species but these animals and also how do they ink so we've learned that the pygmy sperm whale inks and poops at the same time I'm guessing sea hares and cuttlefish a little bit different yeah so that's one of the reasons so first of all sea hares are adorable they're the aplysia species there's different um they're all under the same genus Aplesia. There's different species of Aplesia that ink and not all of them ink, but um, they're very cool and they are very soft and squishy. So it makes sense that they need this extra like defense. Not only do they secrete chemicals that are nasty, but they taste gross too. They have a lot of those same chemicals like in their body. Um, so Aplesia, they will eat red algae. And when they do that, that's what gives their ink the color. It is this like algae um, pigment that they modify within their own bodies and put into their ink so that it has this really nice purpley red color. Um, And then we have cuttlefish, which are another invertebrate. They're still a mollusk, um, but they're one of the cephalopods and they ink as well. However, instead of it being an algae-based ink, theirs is melanin. So the same thing that gives our hair color, our skin color, our irises color, that is what is in that ink. And melanin is a big particle. And what we think it does and how we think inking evolved in these guys is as a detoxifier. So if they're binding all their heavy metals to this big molecule, and then they have a way to get rid of this molecule with all these metals, that's a great way to detoxify your body. And if they were doing this and then it became adaptive, like, hey, this like ink response is helping me survive better because it's warding off predators. um, That's how it evolved. But in both aplasia and in cephalopods, they are very tied to their guts. So, you know, aplasia get some of that, those chemicals from their diet, incorporate them into their ink. And in cuttlefish, um, the ink sac is a diverticulum. It's like a little polyp off of their digestive system. So it is really tied historically and how we think it evolved was through the digestive system. So it's really cool to look at pygmy sperm whales and dwarf sperm whales and see that they are directly inking into their gut. So they ink into their jejunum and their colon, they store all this ink and they let it go. So across all three of these animals, even though they're not related, they didn't pass down some sort of ink organ to everybody. They've all developed this same anti-predation strategy that is tied to their digestive system. Okay, yeah. So it's more kind of like they evolved it maybe as a way to get rid of stuff out of their bodies. And then obviously the ones that this also served as a really effective anti-predation strategy and so they obviously survived the ones with that function um and survived to pass on their genes etc yeah and that explains the poop from the sperm whale (laughs) yeah and also like you know um pooping or like getting rid of like uh excretions as a defense is normal you know like people you know if you ever catch like a bullfrog or catch a toad one of the first things it does is pee on you you know Like that is not something we don't see commonly in the animal kingdom is using your waste as defense. These guys have just kind of been like, ooh, let me add a little something extra to my waste to make it extra gross. (laughs) I'm going to weaponize my poop. (laughs) Exactly. It's awesome. (laughs) A brilliant strategy, but also like the cuttlefish and the sea hares as well. Um, I didn't actually know that sea hair ink was like purpley red in color or at least that like that specific species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be from like a darker purple to it, it really depends on like what type of food they're eating. So there's been studies where they actually will switch like sea hairs that normally eat this red algae and they'll switch it out for like green algae or lettuce and they'll still produce a lot of the defensive compounds, but they won't be colored still. So they're missing that visual um, part of the defense. Oh, right. Okay, so it doesn't, like, if it if they've switched to a different color, it doesn't turn to a different color. It just kind of goes colorless. Right, because they don't have the ability to take that pigment anymore because it's, like, modified to that specific pigment in the red algae. Hmm. 
cool very very cool and like super interesting as well because i i thought you were about to say that like they take on the green algae and then they have like green ink and then they can have all these multicolor different inks that would be really yeah. cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah imagine like if i was a predator um and i could see like the full range of colors and i saw green ink i would definitely be like i am staying away from that guy he does not look nice to eat <laughs> yeah <It's> all... <laughs> but yeah like really really cool and then we're coming back to the bonnet head shock because you also looked at another aspect of your work was not only looking at how the ink ha- ink has evolved as an anti-predation strategy and how the different animals kind of produce that but you also looked at how predators would respond to that ink and as you said sharks are a common predator of ink in organisms especially the bonnet head to do that as well you looked at the micro microstructure of the olfactory system that we were talking about a little bit earlier on what did you find like how did you find that they responded to ink yeah they did not like it that is the main takeaway is they were like please stop not surprised yeah so how we ran these behavioral trials was i was working with our local aquarium in galveston which was moody gardens it was really nice kismet so they needed to collect bonnet heads for their new exhibit Um, i needed to study bonnet heads so we kind of teamed up and they let me use the animals that would later go on display to educate their visitors for my PhD research. So just huge shout out to aquariums that partner with scientists because they have so many awesome facilities. And it's so nice to be able to like use resources that are going to later be enjoyed by the public that are coming and seeing these animals. Um, But we had these animals in these tanks and we would put one shark into its testing tank. And it was kind of just swimming around acclimating. Once it got used to this tank, we... Um, had these little injection stations around. And whenever the shark was approaching one of them, we would release either ink from one of those three inking animals, or we would use food coloring to make sure that the color wasn't the problem. And we would also shoot seawater at them to make sure that just like getting spritzed in the tank wasn't what was bothering them, right? They weren't getting scared of just the little like spritzing. Um, And what we found was they really, oh, we also used food odor. So whatever they were feeding them that day, um, we basically got the little chunky water and put it in to show that one, sharks can have a positive reaction and two, that they weren't just getting scared of everything. So it also helped us to make sure that their noses were still working, like checking in, making sure that the nose wasn't like tired. They weren't bothered by the food coloring. They weren't bothered by the seawater. They liked the food and then they hated the ink. They were like 180 degree turnaround, be like, nope, get me out of here. I don't like this. So did not enjoy it. Interesting. So so what is it in the the ink that, that, that would put them off then? Because I wondered if it would be like the ink, because I don't know like how, maybe you can answer this question. I don't know how sharks like see color. But I don't know, I, I was wondering if it was more of like, a, it was a nasty smell or it kind of like blocked their sight momentarily or like, what is it about the ink that really put them off? So that is something that from our behavioral trials, we couldn't answer super well. So we knew that the ink was bothering them and we knew it wasn't just color because we were putting food coloring in the water and they weren't bothered by it. So we knew that they were coming in contact with this ink and not having a good time. And what we thought was it was a olfactory response. Um, That was like our best guess. So what we know about ink is one, there's chemicals in it that smell bad. So it's kind of like a skunk spray, you know, if something smells bad, you don't want to eat it anymore. Um, Something else about ink is that all ink is released with a type of mucus. So in cephalopods, they release it with mucus. They have a mucus gland that goes with the ink. Um, And it's really cool because they can vary the amount of mucus that they put in. So with very little mucus, it's like this big ink cloud. But with a lot of mucus, they can create ropes or they can create little blobs called pseudomorphs that look like a little kind of like a decoy octopus or a decoy squid. Um, And then aplesia also have opaline, which is kind of this mucusy like substance that they release with their ink. So um, what this does, in addition to like looking cool, is it can coat the sensory organs. So like what we've seen in lobsters is when they get inked, and they hit all goopy ink, they spend a lot of time cleaning themselves rather than attacking the animal because they're so goopy. So the goopiness is part of it too. Right. Like, oh, listeners can't see that, but I'm mimicking like 
something being like, get it off me, get it off me. Exactly. The little, like, angry crustacean dance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Little, little claws. Um, yeah. So, so really interesting that these inks, like, or the strategy kind of evolved in the same way, but they all have, like, different ways of, like, deterring the predator as well. Uh, so a follow-up to that, we uh, this was originally slated to be part of my dissertation, um, but... It, my first experiment started in March of 2020, so they got <laughs> canceled for the pandemic. Ah, uh, say no more. <laughs> but um, now it was really nice because I got to, you know, keep all of that work I had done, and now it's my postdoc. So this is the work that I'm doing now at Florida Atlantic University, is we actually went in with that EOG, so that technology I talked about earlier, where we're able to put electrodes into the nose and actually see that they're smelling something. Um, we just did those with bonnet heads to follow up on this behavioral experiments. And what we saw was, yes, every time that we put the ink on the nose, we got this huge response. So we do know that they are actually smelling the ink. Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, I'm fascinated to see what kind of papers kind of come out of that and what else that you find too. It's just, um, I think, as, as you said at the beginning, like we don't know much about shark noses in the first place it must be such an exciting field to be part of because you're finding out new and super interesting things like all the time yeah it is it's it is really fun because basically every time I look at something that hasn't been published or like there's so many different sharks there's so many different shark species that there's sometimes that I'm like wow I'm the first person to look at this in this way so that is super fun it is however kind of frustrating because you'll be like okay wait I need help with this but then you look around and nobody else is doing this work so you're like "Ooh, okay <laughs> I guess I'll just keep trying to figure it out and we're lucky enough that like those of us who study this we all it's a pretty small field so we're all really collaborative we're all really open to sharing resources and we're all really encouraging of other people coming into this field and helping because there's just so much work to be done that you can't be gatekeeping this type of science or be like this is my thing because you're never one person or a couple people are never going to be able to reach the level of knowledge that we need about this yeah for sure so if any students are listening and they're kind of maybe wondering what field to go into sensory biology might be a fantastic option. <laughs> oh yeah, it is wide open. It's super fun. And you can also read about. Uh, you can read all about this in the book that Miss published, Minorities and Shark Sciences, of which you wrote a chapter, and there is a whole chapter in there on sensory biology and there's lots of other chapters as well as to different fields of shark science so if you're kind of struggling you're wondering what, maybe where to go that's a good place to start um but yeah I wish I could go back and uh yes <laughs> and re-specialize in a different field because it's just so incredibly fascinating <laughs> um but I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot more people that are up and coming who are going to start to become part of the field it's yeah super exciting that's the hope yeah <laughs> I wanted to spend just a little bit of time talking about some common myths because there's a lot of myths around sharks that revolve around their noses and their sense of smell. We've already talked about people thinking of sharks as swimming noses and that that might not necessarily be true, although we're not entirely sure. They might just have different mechanisms to enable some of them to have a good sense of smell. Is that right? Did I do a good summary? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. That's that's pretty I mean that's it but I mean I think something that's really important too when people try to I feel like a lot of times people will get really hung up on like one sense and be like this is so cool they're so good at this but I think it's really important that we think about this is where kind of thinking about ourselves kind of helps because we are very visual animals, but we don't only use our vision. We use our sense of smell. We use our sense of touch. We use all of our vision, all of our senses together in concert. And sharks are the same. So even though they might have some senses that are really powerful, that doesn't mean that they're driven only by that sense. They can take in all of their cues and put them together to make a decision. 
Yeah, of course. And and sharks, um, we we have touched on this a little bit in the podcast, but sharks obviously have that amazing sixth sense, if you like, which is electroreception, which they can also use. Um, and just like us as well, you'll have species of shark that have different uh, some different senses are more prominent than others simply because of where they live um, I'm thinking of like deep sea sharks for example it's not as straightforward as them all either having a really fantastic sense of smell or not having a great sense of smell at all and there are still obviously animals that are incredibly well adapted to living in that ocean environment and surviving and thriving and they have to have senses to help them out with that but I guess another popular myth that I did want to cover with you, um, I know you've talked about this before, but a lot of people think that if, because of Hollywood, I think, <laughs> they think that if you cut yourself and bleed in the water, then all the sharks will come running because they can smell a drop of blood from a hundreds of miles away and they'll go like right into a frenzy and they'll head for it. Is there any truth to this myth? So there's a couple things with it. So first of all, our blood is pretty different from fish blood. So our blood doesn't smell like super appetizing, like extra appetizing to them. Does that mean that they're not attracted to our blood? We don't really like know that qualitatively. Like we can't be like, no, we can't be like, yes. And also it might be like they smell something weird. They're coming over to check it out. Um, and you're bleeding. But the other thing that I think is really interesting and really important for people to think about is that a shark is not a mindless animal. And like even my sharks, when I was putting fish blood into the water, there would be times that they were not like, maybe they'd come out and check it out, but they wouldn't like bite the apparatus like they did sometimes. It's based on how hungry they are and how many resources there are. So if a shark is like really well fed and a shark has plenty of fish around, it's not like struggling for resources and it smells blood, it can make that decision to not eat. You know, it's kind of like when you're really hungry and you smell a restaurant, you're like, oh, I got to go in there and eat. But if you're super full and you smell something really delicious, um, you're really full. So you don't want to eat. So you don't go towards that smell. Sharks are the same way. They can make kind of that modulatory decision of like, something smells good, but I'm not super hungry right now. So I'm not going to go eat. Um, so it's not like they smell blood and they get like finding Nemo crazy. Um, like we see in that movie. Um, they can make kind of decisions. <laughs> I was going to say, what does, what does finding Nemo crazy mean? <laughs> I always think about, people ask me all the time about the scene where Bruce the shark smells the blood and his pupils dilate. Oh. And they're like, it's a breeding frenzy. So that's right. why I say finding Nemo crazy. But no, it's not always I like get that. You. <laughs> I'd completely forgotten about that scene, yeah. and I was like, "Wait, is Finding Nemo? Is he, does Nemo get crazy or Dolly?" Or <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> Imagine, yeah. Imagine. Um, I've just blocked that shark scene out of my head. Clearly, that's good to know. And we were kind of chatting about that with uh, Chris Pepper Neff, who came on to talk to us about like the history of like shark um, attacks. I use that in like quotation marks. Um, and they were saying that it's it's often when you get these kind of incidences where you get multiple bites at once, it's often a combination of factors that are all working together because nine times out of 10, the shark's not going to want to go for you. And even if they do, the evidence is there to suggest that we don't taste very nice, although that would be really hard to actually prove. Um, you know, you can't ask a shark, you know, do you like that? <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's good to know because I think that is definitely a trope that Hollywood has pushed Oh yeah, time mm -hmm. and time again. I feel like I bring up this on the podcast all the time and I feel really bad because, well, I don't have anything against the actress, but I keep bringing up that film, The Shallows with Blake Lively. And there's so many scenes like that where there's just like, she's like cut herself on some coral and bleeding everywhere and the shark's like, hell yeah and just like carries yeah. on like swimming around her the whole time yeah so I think if there's any Hollywood directors listening you need to stop doing that <laughs> I agree yeah we have an actual sensory biologist now saying that that doesn't actually happen so the expert has spoken <laughs> but yeah I just wanted to talk about those myths a wee bit and we've discussed your fascinating research on shark noses and 50 minutes goes so quickly, um, but I just have a couple of final questions for you. Um, the first one is, how can people find out about, find out more about you and your snoot science? 
Yeah. So I am on Twitter and Instagram as um, Ocean Explorin. Um, so my like ocean and then EXP and then my name, L-A-U-R-E-N. It's like the only pun I've ever thought of with my name and I'm very proud of it. It's brilliant. Um, thank you. <laughs> I thank appreciate you. it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's a great place. You can um, look me up. Basically, if you Google like Lauren Simonitis, my website comes up, all of stuff, all this kind of stuff comes up. Um, and then I re- I always promote and I'm really involved in the nonprofit Minorities in Shark Science. So you can see the work that I do with them and the work that we do as an organization on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, our website. There's so many ways to see us and see my work. Awesome. And as always, the links to everything and how how to find Lauren and how to find Miss will be in the show notes. So head and go and check those out and please do go and check out their work. Um, and my final question, I'm very sad it's come to a final question actually. I, I feel like I could like <laughs> talk to you all day and ask you questions about this all day. Um, but if you could be any species of shark, ray, skate or chimera, we've had to add that in because we had so many deep sea scientists on. <laughs> good, good, good. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> what would you be and why? I've been thinking about this and I think one of the most fun to be would be like a short fin mako because you just I I think just the fact that they swim so fast is so cool and you're a little solitary which I kind of like like I'm not in the hustle and bustle but I can decide to be if I want to so I think a short fin mako is my my answer nice nice good choice and I also feel like thanks I wish I could run as fast as that (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah amazing choice well Lauren it has been such a pleasure to chat to you and to get to know your research more and maybe at some point in the future we can have a part two when we found out a little bit more about shark noses and shark senses that would be so much fun oh I would love that (laughs) but for now thank you so so much for your time and your knowledge and thanks so much for coming on the world of sharks Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun chat. And yes, I will keep you updated and we can always do a follow-up. <laughs> Yay. I'm so happy. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and produced by me, Isla Hodgson. Our incredible visuals are by Jamie Silver. Our lovely logo is by Nicola Poulos. And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A enormous thank you to Lauren for coming on the podcast and teaching us all about shark noses and predator-prey relationships. It was so fascinating. I loved every single second of this. And as I said in the intro, please, please, please do go and show Lauren some love. You can find all the links to her social media and all the links to her website, her work, in the show notes of this episode on the World of Sharks website. And thank you at home for listening. If you have a topic or a question that you want us to cover, or you just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch. You can email Isla at SaveRCs.com, or you can find us on social media. We are at SaveRCs Foundation on Instagram and TikTok, and at SaveRCs on Twitter. Alrighty, have a jawsome week, and we will see you next time.